0: For the Love of Reading, featuring selections from novels, complete short stories, poetry, and nonfiction, Read for you by Linda Pack and special guest Kate Magruder. Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. And that's from the Roman philosopher Seneca.
1: A journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. That's Lao Tzu. The journey to a new home,
0: stepping forward onto an unknown and possibly stony path, is filled with challenges. It takes courage and determination and the realest of resources, material support and strength of character.
1: New beginnings are filled with possibility. We're going to read for you selections from the ridiculous to the sublime. Great fiction and true historical accounts that celebrate the hardship, the delight, and the wonder of changing where you live, moving to a new home.
0: And you know, we're going to start with Carl Sandburg. Because Carl Sandburg was a wonderful American poet and historian. He won three Pulitzer Prizes, two for his poetry and one for his monumental biography of Abraham Lincoln. He collected 280 folk songs and ballads in his epic American song bag. And he also created a whimsical world called the Rutabaga Country. And he did that solely for the entertainment and delight of his three young daughters. They are called the Rutabaga Stories. And here is the very, very first Rutabaga Story. And it is called How They Broke Away to go to rutabaga country. Gimme the Axe lived in a house where everything is the same as it always was. The chimney sits on the top of the house and lets the smoke out, said gimme the axe. The doorknobs open the doors. The windows are always either open or shut. We're always either upstairs or downstairs in this house. Everything is the same as it always was. So he decided to let his children name themselves. First words they speak, as soon as they learn to make words, shall be their names,' he said. "'They shall name themselves.' When the first boy came to the house of Gimme the Axe, he was named Please Gimme. When the first girl came, she was named Axe Me No Questions.' And both of the children had the shadows of valleys by night in their eyes, and the lights of early morning when the sun is coming up on their foreheads. And the hair on the top of their heads was a dark, wild grass. And they loved to turn the doorknobs and open the doors and run out to have the wind comb their hair and touch their eyes and put its six soft fingers on their foreheads. And then... "'Because no more boys came, and no more girls came,' "'Gimme the Axe said to himself. "'My first boy is my last, and my last girl is my first, "'And they picked their names themselves. "'Please, Gimme grew up, and his ears got longer. "'Ax Me No Questions grew up, and her ears got longer. "'And they kept on living in the house "'where everything is the same as it always was. "'They learned to say, just as their father said.' "'The chimney sits on the top of the house and lets the smoke out. "'The doorknobs open the doors. "'The windows are always either open or shut. "'We are always either upstairs or downstairs. "'Everything is the same as it always was.' "'After a while, they became asking each other "'in the cool of the evening, "'after they had eggs for breakfast in the morning. "'Who's who? How much? And what's the answer?' "'It is too much to be too long anywhere,' said the tough old man, Gimme the Axe. "'And please, gimme, and ask me no questions,' the tough son and tough daughter of Gimme the Axe answered their father, "'It is too much to be too long anywhere.'" So they sold everything they had—pigs, pastures, pepper-pickers, pitchforks, everything except their rag-bags and a few extras— When their neighbors saw them selling everything they had, the different neighbors said, They are going to Kansas, to Kokomo, to Canada, to Kankakee, to Kalamazoo, to Kamchatka, to the Chattahoochee. All the spot cash money he got for selling everything, pigs, pastures, pepper pickers, pitchforks. Gimme the axe put in the rag bag and slung on his back like a rag picker going home. Then he took, please give me, his oldest and youngest and only son, and, ax me no questions, his oldest and youngest and only daughter, and went to the railroad station. The ticket agent was sitting at the window selling railroad tickets, the same as always. Do you wish a ticket to go away and come back? Or do you wish a ticket to go away and never come back? "'the ticket agent asked, wiping sleep out of his eyes. "'We wish a ticket to ride where the railroad tracks "'run off into the sky and never come back. "'Send us far as the railroad rails go "'and then 40 ways farther yet,' was the reply of Gimme the Axe. "'So far, so early, so soon,' asked the ticket agent, "'wiping more sleep out of his eyes.' Then I will give you a new ticket. It blew in. It is a long, slick, yellow, leather slab ticket with a blue spanch across it. Gimme the axe thanked the ticket agent once, thanked the ticket agent twice, and then instead of thanking the ticket agent three times, he opened the rag bag and took out all the spot cash money he got for selling everything. Pigs, pastures, pepper pickers, pitchforks, and paid the spot cash money to the ticket agent. Before he put it in his pocket, he looked once, twice, three times at the long yellow leather slab ticket with a blue spanch across it. Then, with please gimme and ask me no questions, he got on the railroad train, showed the conductor his ticket, and they started to ride to where the railroad tracks run off into the blue sky and then forty ways farther yet. The train ran on and on. It came to the place where the railroad tracks run off into the blue sky, and it ran on and on chick 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 chick. Sometimes the engineer hooted and tooted the whistle. Sometimes the fireman rang the bell. Sometimes the open and shut of the steam hog's nose choked and spit fistifost. But no matter what happened to the whistle and the bell and the steam hog, the train ran on and on to where the railroad tracks run off into the blue sky. On and on and on, more and more. Not even the kings of Egypt with all their climbing cabinals and all their speedy, spotted, lucky lizards ever had a ride like this, he said to his children. Then something happened. They met another train running on the same track. One train was going one way, the other was going the other way. They met. They passed each other. What What was it? What happened? the children asked their father. One train went over, the other train went under, he answered. This is the over and under country. Nobody gets out of the way of anybody else. They either go over or under. Next, they came to the country of the balloon pickers. Hanging down from the sky, strung on strings so fine, the eye could not see them at first, was the balloon crop of that summer. The sky was thick with balloons, red, blue, yellow balloons, white, purple, and orange balloons, peach, watermelon, and potato balloons, rye loaf and wheat loaf balloons, link sausage and pork chop balloons. They floated and filled the sky. The balloon pickers were walking on high stilts, picking balloons. Each picker had his own stilts, long or short. For picking balloons near the ground, he had short stilts. If he wanted to pick far and high, he walked on a far and high pair of stilts. Baby pickers on baby stilts were picking baby balloons. When they fell off the stilts, the handful of balloons they were holding kept them in the air till they got their feet into the stilts again. Who <clears throat> oh, is that away up there in the sky climbing like a bird in the morning? Ask me no questions, asked her father. He was singing too happy, replied the father. The songs came out of his neck and made him so light the balloons pulled him off his stilts. Will he ever come down again to his own people? Yes, his heart will get heavy when his songs are all gone. Then he will drop down to his stilts again. The train was running on and on. The engineer hooted and tooted the whistle when he felt like it. The fireman rang the bell when he felt that way. And sometimes the open and shut of the steam hog had to go. Pfffty, pffft, Next we come to is the rutabaga country, where the big city is, the village of liver and onions," said Gimme the Axe. Look out of the window and see if the pigs have bibs on, said Gimme the Axe. If the pigs are wearing bibs, then this is the rutabaga country. And they looked out, and the first pigs they saw had bibs on, and the next pigs, and the next pigs they saw All had bibs on. The checker pigs had checker bibs on. The striped pigs had striped bibs on. And the polka dot pigs had polka dot bibs on. Who fixes it for the pigs to have the bibs on? Please gimme, asked his father. The fathers and mothers fix it. "'answered Gimme the Axe. "'The checker pigs have checker fathers and mothers, "'and the striped pigs have striped fathers and mothers, "'and the polka-dot pigs have polka-dot fathers and mothers. "'And the train went on and on, "'and after a while, "'on into the village of Liver and Onions, "'known as the biggest city in the big, big rutabaga country. "'And so... If you are going to the rutabaga country, you will know when you get there, because the railroad tracks change from straight to zigzag, and the pigs have bibs on, and it is the fathers and mothers who fix it. And if you start to go to that country, remember, first you must sell everything you have, pigs, pastures, pepper pickers, pitchforks put the spot cash money in a rag bag and go to the railroad station and ask the ticket agent for a long, slick, yellow, leather slab ticket with a blue spanch across it. And you mustn't be surprised if the ticket agent wipes sleep from his eyes and asks, So far? So early? So soon? That was... How They Broke Away to Go to the Rutabaga Country from the Rutabaga Stories by Carl Sandberg.
1: Yes, and that was wonderful, but Linda, that story isn't true. No, it yeah, is. No, it? No, no, it's no, not no. true. But it's here is true. a true story. Oh, true story. Good. Right out of the pages of the 1880 history of Mendocino County, California, comprising its geography, geology, topography, climatography, springs, and timber. <laughs> here it goes. In 1850, three years after his marriage to Charlotte Curtis Coffrin, William Henry Kent of Mount Vernon, Maine, came to California to try his luck in its gold mines. By 1853, he was on the Mendocino Coast working at the Little River Sawmill. He soon realized that he could make more money in feeding the folks involved in the expanding lumber industry than he could in logging, so he started a dairy and cattle ranch on 1,000 acres a mile south of the town of Mendocino, the area now partially encompassed, encompassed by Van Damme State Park. In February, 1854, he wrote to his wife, who he had left in Massachusetts four years before. Dear wife, I am at Big River. It is in Mendocino Point in Mendocino County. It is not an incorporated place, nor has it any post office yet. It is very much needed, for there is over 200 people here now, and they are fast increasing. Please write to Mr. Hill's wife. She lately received a letter from her husband, stating that if she would come toward spring, he would meet her at San Francisco. Yours truly, W.H. Kent. Ah, but bonded in November of
0: 1854, which was a full four years after he'd left her in, in Maine. My dear husband, when you wrote requesting me to write Mr. Hill's wife and make arrangements to go with her, you did not give me any directions about going, nor what I should do when I got there. I shall write Mrs. Hill immediately and ascertain when and what and all about it. I inquired in Boston about the price of tickets. It is now $300. The fare has been raised lately. Your affectionate wife, C. C. Kent. And then shortly after that, she wrote him again. It seems to me that it's not right for me to go to California. If it is not best, I do not want to go. For everyone that has been tells me that it is a hard journey. As soon as I hear from Mrs. Hill, I will write to you she is a stranger. It is rather risky for me to start with an entire stranger. I want to know what sort of a person she is. You see how the luck works? Everything is against me. Write me often, your affectionate wife,
1: C.C. C. Kent. Finally, Mrs. Kent and Mrs. Hill took boat passage from New York Fraught with all the tedious vexations of a sea voyage on the rough Atlantic, they arrived at the Isthmus of Panama. Which they crossed on the second train that had ever passed over that road. On this side, they embarked on the steamer Golden Age, arriving in San Francisco march twenty seventh, eighteen
0: fifty-five. Oh, that had to be at least four to six months since they'd left uh, Boston, it was right? No
1: fun. Ah, uh, They expected, of course, to meet their husbands at the wharf. But it must be remembered that communication was not so perfect in those days as now, and failure to meet appointments where any great distance had to be traveled was the rule. And just at the time that the husband
0: had expected to start to San Francisco to meet their wives, a heavy rainstorm caused all the streams to swell Mm -hmm. beyond their ordinary flood levels and they were detained for three weeks.
1: During which time the ladies were doing the best they could
0: in a strange city. At last, Mr. Kent arrived in San Francisco Mrs. Kent had never so rejoiced before to see his familiar face. And they then began casting
1: about for a way to get up to Big River. So they took the steamer to Petaluma. And from Petaluma, they took a carriage for Cloverdale, paying $20 each for the passage. Then they ferried across the Russian River in a small skiff. From Cloverdale to Mendocino City, there was no road. Only a trail which led up through Anderson Valley. And came out on the coast below Greenwood Creek. And then up the coast to Big River. The weather was most delightful, and the full glory of a California springtime was visible on every hand. The green
0: grass had sprung into such life that it covered the valleys and mountainsides
1: with an emerald carpet. The myriads of wildflowers were in the full exuberance of their wonderful, <laughs> beauteous blooming. And on the distant
0: mountain signs, bright sunlight fell in a shimmer of golden flood, making the world a paradise. Mm.
1: And for the 1850s, that was the luxurious and easy way to get to Mendocino County.
0: Even if it took six months and mm-hmm. 85 yeah, different kinds yeah, of easy ways of peasy, traveling. Because. Yes.
1: In Helen Carpenter's, A Journey Across the Plains in an Ox Cart, she tells her true story of traveling from Kansas to Potter Valley in 1857. And here are selections from that diary. Oh, good. May 26, 1857. Ho for California. At last we are on the way, and with good luck someday may reach the promised land. The trip has been so long talked of, and the preparations have gone on under so many disadvantages that to be ready at last, to start, is something of an event. Our party consists of three families. Uncle Sam Mahwinnie, with his wife, two sons, and three helpers, is captain of the train, having crossed the plains in 49. And next in order is our wagon, with A.O. Carpenter, that's my husband, real, myself, And henry wilson a 17 year old boy to help and last in line is father mother 16 year old sister emily nine-year-old brother hale three-month-old baby sister and father's man john cousin teresa is going to ride her indian pony and help the boys drive the cattle which make up the rear of the procession the camp tonight looks very pretty the five wagons with white covers are looking very much dressed up as they stand in a semicircle in the waving green grass. The cattle and horses, one hundred or more in all, are off to one side grazing, and the campfires within the circle are burning brightly. Ah, oh, I can bid Kansas goodbye without regret. <laughs> June fourth, eighteen fifty-seven. During this day's journey, which is in the Black Hills, there were so many beautiful stones along the road that we did a great deal of walking just for the pleasure of picking them up to admire for a little while. I took some of the pretty, prettier ones away in the pockets of the wagon cover, but they were soon thrown away to lighten the load. All the colors of the rainbow were represented. There was carnelian, amber, emerald, topaz, rubies, and any amount of the coarser articles, such as gingerbread or sassafras and Castile soap and so on. The high wind, which prevailed, interfered very much with our locomotion and switched our dresses about, leaving the pedal extremities in a precarious condition. To overcome this, Aunt Sis and Emily pinned some rocks in the bottom of their skirts, never dreaming of the black shins they would carry for the next week. Needless to say, that their invention was not a success, and so was never patented. <laughs> June 8th, 1857. Three Pawnee Indians came while we were nooning. They asked for food, but the order was, don't give them a thing. It was thought that they would follow and be a nuisance if shown any kindness. I could not poor wretches watching every mouthful like hungry dogs. Mother found an opportunity to slip something to them, and they did not follow or give any trouble. June 13th, arrived at Fort Kearney, Nebraska, about noon. Pawnee Indians are in evidence everywhere. They have no clothing and are wrapped in very unsanitary-looking blankets and are adept at the management of them with pins or string. We are told that they have just returned from a buffalo hunt and horse-stealing expedition and are here at the fort for the express purpose of disposing of their dried meat to the emigrants. But the meat was well sold out before we knew it was to be had. June 15th. Found no water at noon. A herd of buffalo was seen this afternoon at a comparatively short distance away. This created general excitement and eight or 10 of the company gave chase, some on foot, some horseback, armed with muskets, revolvers, and knives. Reel came in bringing the good news in capturing a big buffalo bull. As it was two miles from camp, all haste had to be made in returning with oxen to haul it in. They estimate that the animals weight as one ton, and age anywhere from 12 to 20 years. All are busy caring for the meat, of which there is plenty. There's no wood to be had without going a mile in one way or taking a shortcut through a muddy slough and then wading the river, which is shoulder deep. Both ways have been tried, with the result that each party wishes he had gone the other way. Tonight the wagons are decorated with slices of meat, dangling from strings fastened to ropes that reach from the front to back along the side of the wagons, looking very much like coarse red fringe. My string of meat is to hang inside the wagon in the day to keep it out of the dust as much as possible. June 22nd, 1857. There was neither time nor inclination to write more yesterday. It was night before all were across the Platte River, and then supper had to be gotten and damp things pulled out of the wagon, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, and everybody was dead tired. Where we went down into the water, the river bank was steep and about four feet high. On our first entrance into the stream the wagon came near standing on end, and when the wagon was righted, there was little to reassure us. The water runs very swiftly, and that, together with the sand washing from under the wheels or the wheels settling down into the quicksand, caused a shaking, trembling sensation that was truly terrifying. It was difficult to keep the cattle moving in the right direction as they bore off downstream on account of the swiftness of the water. If they halted for just a moment, they had difficulty in getting their feet out of the quicksand. In places, the water was midway of the wagon beds. Each team and wagon cut down into the sand, which was at once washed away, leaving an entirely different footing for the one following immediately after. The cattle were forced to swim, but, and the wagon floated. <sighs> all in all, we came off well. No life lost. Cattle all safely across and provisions but slightly injured by the water. July 25th, 1857. Took a long nooning, and then after five miles camped beside the creek opposite a high bank of stone, 40 or 50 feet high, very little grass. The cattle are obliged to feed on green willows and consequently many have died at this point and their bodies lie in the stream and there's no other drinking water. It has come to be the rule that such conditions prevail. We are reminded of the old adage, one can get used to anything. And again, that the calf died just as it got used to doing without eating. Are we to share its fate? It is very cold. August 7th, how we do wish for some vegetables. I can really scent them cooking sometimes. I had an opportunity this noon to eat some cold beans. The boys cooked so much bacon with them that each bean had a rim of grease around it. Oh, well, I can plainly see that I am too particular. But then one does like a change. And about the only change we have from bread and bacon is to bacon and bread August 22nd 1857 two miles from camp we came to a small hole of water with a mud bottom a mile further came to another small stream of such poor water that the cattle did not like to drink it traveled eight or ten miles in the afternoon in 1000 Springs Valley which is a great expanse of level country barren of trees If it were covered in grass, it would be called a prairie, but since it was only a very poor quality of sagebrush, I call it abominable. August 24th, we followed down the valley and camped by the creek. My mind was so distracted by the dust that I have no idea how far we came. Uncle Sam Mahwini has gone on ahead, so now that we have joined this train, we must go at the tail of the procession Nine wagons ahead of us, each with from four to six yoke of oxen dragging their feet along in dust, which was so light that it only needed a breath of air to set it floating in clouds. The air was so full of dust that our own oxen and driver were at times quite obscured. I put a curtain across the front of the wagon and opened the back in an effort to get air thin enough to breathe. But people back in the States have no conception of a dusty road. November, 1859, at the foot of the final range that had to be crossed before reaching Potter Valley, there was no road, merely a hazardous sidling trail known as Devil's Dump. Doubtful about the advisability of attempting to take such a heavy wagon across the mountain, it was decided that only the most necessary things could be kept to light the cooking stove. Before two miles had been traveled, the hills were found so steep that everything had to be taken out of the wagon and carried. The rain, which had been falling nearly every day since leaving Sacramento three weeks before, now turned to snow. While the cattle were being urged up by an occasional swear word, there was a great and pleasant surprise. Uncle Sam Mahwinnie and two cousins appeared on the scene, leading three saddle horses. As a big storm was coming on, all haste had to be made to reach the valley. The heap of clothing and goods, now well snowed over, were piled back into the wagon, and on top of all, a gun placed with its muzzle pointing outward to prevent it being molested. The procession moved toward the valley we women on horseback riding sideways in men's saddles with the children in our laps, the men walking and driving the oxen. Along the sides of precipitous gulches and down such steep hills with darkness coming on, we were urged to hold tight and you'll get there. Our earthly effects were scattered along the road from the Sacramento Valley to the top of the mountain overlooking Potter Valley. We had positively nothing but the clothes on our backs. Long after nightfall, we reached a warm fire and a hearty welcome. In all that long journey across the plains, there had been nothing to compare to this. And that was from A Journey Across the Plains in an Ox Cart. Written in 1857 by Helen Carpenter. Her true story, her journey more than 150
0: years ago, it 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 makes me think of the faith and stamina that it takes to travel to a new home. Mm. It makes me think of the poem by Christina Rossetti uh, called "Uphill." Here, let's we'll read it together. Okay does the road wind uphill all the way
1: yes to the very end
0: will the day's journey take the whole long day from morn to night my friend but is there for for the night a resting place a roof for when the slow dark hours begin may not the darkness hide it from my face you cannot miss that inn shall i meet other wayfarers at night those who've gone before, then must I knock or call when just in sight? They will not keep you standing at that door. Shall I find comfort, travel sore and weak?
1: Of labor you shall find the sum.
0: Will there be beds for me
1: and all who seek? Yea, beds for all who come. That's good news, Mm -hmm. isn't
0: it? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I... I want to read now another story of coming to a new home. It was so often the subject of that great American novelist, Willa Cather. Mm. She wrote so deeply of the immigrant experience, in particular, of making a new home in America. My Antonia, which she wrote in 1918, begins in the late 1880s in Nebraska, And it focuses on the life of a Czechoslovakian immigrant girl as she comes of age with the land, as seen through the eyes of her old and true friend Jim. It's written in his voice. So here is a selection from the opening chapters of Willa Cather's novel, My Antonia. I first heard of Antonia on what seemed to me an interminable journey across the great Midland Plain of North America. I was ten years old then. I had lost both my father and mother within a year, and my Virginia relatives were sending me out to my grandparents, who lived in Nebraska. I traveled in the care of a mountain boy, Jake Marpole, one of the hands on my father's old farm under the Blue Ridge, who was now going west to work for my grandfather. Jake's experience of the world was not much wider than mine. He'd never been in a railway train until the morning when we set out together to try our fortunes in a new world. We went all the way in day coaches, becoming more sticky and grimy with each stage of the journey. Jake bought everything the newsboys offered him—candy, oranges, brass collar buttons, a watch charm, and for me, a life of Jesse James, which I remember as one of the most satisfactory books I have ever read. Mm -hmm. Beyond Chicago, we were under the protection of a friendly passenger conductor who knew all about the country to which we were going and gave us a great deal of advice in exchange for our confidence— He seemed to us, an experienced and worldly man who had been almost everywhere. In his conversation, he threw out lightly the names of distant states and cities. Once, when he sat down to chat, he told us that in the immigrant car ahead of us, there was a family from across the water whose destination was the same as ours. "'They can't any of them speak English except one little girl, "'and all she can say is, "'We go Black Hawk, Nebraska. "'She's not much older than you, 12 or 13, maybe, "'and she's as bright as a new dollar. "'Don't you want to go ahead and see her, Jimmy? "'She's got the pretty brown eyes, too.' "'This last remark made me bashful, "'and I shook my head and settled down to Jesse James.' Jake nodded at me approvingly and said, you were likely to get diseases from foreigners. I do not remember crossing the Missouri River or anything about the long day's journey through Nebraska. The only thing very noticeable about Nebraska was that it was still all day long Nebraska. I'd been sleeping, curled up in a red plush seat for a long while when we reached Black Hawk. Jake roused me and took me by the hand. We stumbled down from the train to a wooden siding where men were running about with lanterns. I couldn't see any or even distant lights. We were surrounded by utter darkness. The engine was panting heavily after its long run. In the red glow from the firebox, a group of people stood huddled together on the platform, encumbered by bundles and boxes. I knew this must be the immigrant family the conductor had told us about. Presently, a man with a lantern approached them and began to talk, shouting and exclaiming. I pricked up my ears, for it was positively the first time I had ever heard a foreign tongue. Another lantern came along. A bantering voice called out, "'Hello, are you Mr. Burden's folks? "'If you are, it's me you're looking for. "'I'm Otto Fuchs. "'I'm Mr. Burden's hired man, and I'm to drive you on. "'Hello, Jimmy. Ain't you scared to come so far west?' I looked up with interest at the new face in the lantern light. "'He might have stepped out of the pages of Jesse James.' He wore a sombrero hat with a wide leather band and a bright buckle and the ends of his mustache were twisted up stiffly like little horns. Surely this was the face of a desperado. He told us we had a long night drive ahead and we'd better be on the hike. He led us to a hitching bar where two farm wagons were tied and I saw the foreign family crowding into one of them. The other was for us. Jake got on the front seat with Otto Fuchs, and I rode on the straw in the bottom of the wagon box, covered up with a buffalo hide. The immigrants rumbled off into the empty darkness, and we followed them. I tried to go to sleep, but the jolting made me bite my tongue, and I soon began to ache all over. Cautiously, I slipped from under the buffalo hide, got up on my knees, and peered up over the side of the wagon. There seemed to be nothing to see. No fences, no creeks or trees, no hills or fields. If there was a road, I could not make it out in the faint starlight. There was nothing but land. Not a country at all, but the material out of which countries are made. No, there was nothing but land. Slightly undulating, I knew, because often our wheels ground against the brake as we went down into a hollow and then lurched up again on the other side. I had the feeling that the world was left behind, that we'd got over the edge of it, and we were outside man's jurisdiction. I'd never before looked up at the sky when there was not a familiar mountain ridge against it, but this was the complete dome of heaven, and there was all of it. Mm. I did not believe that my dead father and mother were watching me from up there. Mm. They would be looking for me at the sheepfold down by the creek or along the white road that led to the mountain pastures. I'd left even their spirits behind me. Mm. The wagon jolted on, carrying me. I knew not whither. I don't think I was homesick, If we never arrived anywhere, it did not matter. Between that earth and that sky, I felt erased, blotted out. I did not say my prayers that night. Here, I felt, what would be, would be. I do not remember our arrival at my grandfather's farm sometime before daybreak, after a drive of nearly 20 miles with heavy workhorses. When I awoke, it was afternoon. I was lying in a little room scarcely larger than the bed that held me and the window shade of my head was flapping softly in a warm wind. A tall woman with wrinkled brown skin and black hair stood looking down at me. I knew that she must be my grandmother. She'd been crying, I could see, but when I opened my eyes, she smiled and peered at me anxiously and sat down at the foot of my bed. Had a good sleep, Jimmy? she asked briskly and then in a very different tone she said as if to herself my how you do look like your father and i remembered that my father had been her little boy she must often have come to wake him like this when he overslept here are your clean clothes she went on stroking my coverlid with her brown hand as she talked But first you come down to the kitchen with me and have a nice warm bath behind the stove. Bring your things, there's nobody about. As I entered the kitchen, I sniffed the pleasant smell of gingerbread baking. The stove was very large, with bright nickel trimmings, and behind it there was a long wooden bench against the wall and a tin wash tub, into which grandmother poured hot and cold water. When she brought the soap and towels, I told her that I was used to taking my bath without help. Can you do your ears, Jimmy? Are you sure? Well, now I call you a right smart little boy. Early the next morning, I ran out of doors to look about me. I'd been told that ours was the only wooden house west of Blackhawk until you came to the Norwegian settlement, where there were several. Our neighbors lived in sod houses and dugouts, comfortable, but not very roomy. Everywhere, as far as the eye could reach, there was nothing but rough, shaggy, red grass, most of it as tall as I. Little trees were insignificant against the grass. It seemed as if the grass were about to run over them and over the plum patch behind the sod chicken house. As I looked about me, I felt that the grass was the country, as the water is the sea. The red of the grass made all the great prairie the color of wine stains, or of certain seaweeds when they're first washed up. And there was so much motion in it, the whole country seemed somehow to be running. I had almost forgotten that I had a grandmother when she came out, her sunbonnet on her head, a grain sack in her hand, and asked me if I did not want to go to the garden with her to dig potatoes for dinner. The garden, curiously enough, was a quarter of a mile from the house, and the way to it led up a shallow draw past the cattle corral. Grandmother called my attention to a stout hickory cane, tipped with copper, which hung by a leather thong from her belt. This, she said, was her rattlesnake cane. I must never go into the garden without a heavy stick or a corn knife. She'd killed many good rattlers on her way back and forth. A little girl who lived on Blackhawk Road was bitten on the ankle and had been sick all summer. I can remember exactly how the country looked to me as I walked beside my grandmother along the faint wagon tracks on that early September morning. Perhaps the glide of long railway travel was still with me, for more than anything else I felt motion in the landscape, in the fresh, easy, blowing morning wind, and in the earth itself as if the shaggy grass were a sort of loose hide and underneath it herds of wild buffalo were galloping galloping. Alone, I should never have found the garden, except perhaps for the big yellow pumpkins that lay about unprotected by their withering vines, and I felt very little interest in it when I got there. I wanted to walk straight on through the red grass and over the edge of the world, which could not be very far away. The light air about me told me that the world ended here. Hmm. Only the ground and the sun and the sky were left, and if one went a little farther, there would be only sun and sky, and one would float off into them like the tawny hawks which sailed over our heads, Hmm. making slow shadows on the grass." While Grandmother took the pitchfork, we found standing in one of the rows and dug potatoes while I picked them up out of the soft brown earth and put them into the bag. I kept looking up at the hawks that were doing what I might so easily do. When Grandmother was ready to go, I said I would like to stay up there in the garden a while. She peered down at me from under her sunbonnet. Aren't you afraid of snakes? A little, I admitted but I'd like to stay anyhow. Well, if you see one, don't have anything to do with him. It's the big yellow and brown ones. They won't hurt you. They're bull snakes and help to keep the gophers down. Don't be scared if you see anything. Look out of that hole in the bank over there. That's a badger hole. He's about as big as a big possum, and his face is striped black and white. He takes a chicken once in a while, but I won't let the men harm him. In a new country, a body feels friendly to the animals. I like to have them come out and watch me when I'm at work. Grandmother swung the bag of potatoes over her shoulder and went down the path, leaning forward a little. The road followed the windings of the draw, and when she came to the first bend, she waved at me and disappeared. I was left alone with this new feeling of lightness and content. I sat down in the middle of the garden, where snakes could scarcely approach unseen, and leaned my back against a warm yellow pumpkin. There were some ground cherry bushes growing along the furrows, full of fruit. I turned back the papery triangular sheaths that protected the berries and ate a few. All about me, the giant grasshoppers... "'twice as big as any I'd ever seen, "'were doing acrobatic feats among the dried vines. "'The gophers scurried up and down the ploughed ground. "'There, in the sheltered draw-bottom, "'the wind did not blow very hard, "'but I could hear it singing its humming tune up on the level, "'and I could see the tall grasses wave. "'The earth was warm under me, "'and warm as I crumbled it through my fingers.' Queer little red bugs came out and moved in slow squadrons around me. Their backs were polished vermilion with black spots. I kept as still as I could. Nothing happened. I did not expect anything to happen. I was something that lay under the sun and felt it like the pumpkins. And I did not want to be anything more. I was entirely happy. Perhaps we feel like that when we die and become part of something entire, whether it is sun and air or goodness and knowledge. At any rate, that is happiness, to be dissolved into something complete and great. When it comes to one, it comes as naturally as sleep. That was from the opening chapters of My Antonia by Willa Cather.
1: Gosh, I love that book. (laughs) And listening to you read that, it it makes me think just of the profound satisfaction of going somewhere and knowing your home when you get there.
0: Yes, and, and I think of the courage it takes to make that journey. When Jim makes the journey in... In my Antonia, he's so young, and uh, and so at the beginning of things, he's not. He can only move forward, but if you change from something you're used to, that's different. It it just takes courage
1: to make a journey and and to make choices along the way. Well, and it's the choices that that make up our lives, <laughs> uh, and that that reminds me of the um, Robert Frost poem, The Road Not Taken. <gasps> and I've known that poem. I think many of us have known it for years, but when I was rereading it lately, uh, I, I heard, a new, I heard new, new tones in it, new information. Here's, here's how it is. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler, Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted I should ever come back. And I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Thank you, Kate.
0: You've just heard The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost, read so beautifully by my special guest and dear friend, Kate Magruder. Mm. Thank you for joining me, Kate, on this edition of For the Love of Reading, Journey to a New Home. The material read on this edition of For the Love of Reading was selected, reviewed, and edited by Linda Pack. It was performed by Linda Pack and special guest Kate Magruder. The program was engineered by Alicia Bales. This program is archived and available for online listening as part of the KZYX Public Affairs podcast. Or go to lindapack.net, where you will find information and links to all of the shows aired on For the Love of Reading. And now, from her 1985 concert at Cotton Auditorium with Andrei Kataev on piano... Here's Judy Mahan singing Everything Must Change.
2: Everything must change Nothing stays the same Everything must change No one stays the same Young become the old And mysteries do unfold Yes, that's the way with time No one goes unchanged Sunlight's up the sky, and humming birds do fly. Winter turns to spring, the lonely heart does heal. never much too soon Yes, everything must change Sun lights up the sky And hummingbirds do There are not many things in life you can be sure of Except rain falls from the clouds and sunlights lights up the sky and hummingbirds do fly. Rain falls from the clouds and sunlights lights up the sky and hummingbirds do fly. Rain falls from the clouds and sun lights up the sky hummingbirds do fly. Everything must change.